This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary. subsidiary. Of the BBC. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast. The podcast that's battling down the hatches and prepping for the storm. Today, it's all about the weather. Good weather, bad weather, weird weather. And our first port of call is the place which has more lightning storms than anywhere else on the planet. It's in Venezuela in South America, where the Catatumbo River empties into the huge expanse of Lake Maracaibo. The lightning storms there can go on for up to 10 hours, with up to 280 lightning strikes per hour. It's got a Guinness World Record and everything. The lightning rates in there can go up to completely uncomprehendable amounts. I've seen storms that had five or six lightning strikes every second which is at some point quite hard to watch because your eyes don't really know how to interpret what you're seeing right now. And obviously if that storm is on top of you, you're going to get completely blasted by rain. 200, 300 litres a square metre in two hours maybe. If storms are your thing, then Catatumbo is the place to be. I'm a storm photographer, so this is obviously my dream place, you know. My name is Jonas Piontek. I'm actually a photographer and a storm chaser from Germany. Somebody posted an article about it and I saw it and I was obviously like, oh, damn, I need to go to that place that looks absolutely epic. When I went there for the first time, I didn't really know what to expect. And basically I arrived there and I met that guy. His name is Alan and he's, he's the owner of the camp and he does the tours out there. He told me there's like some sort of spirit in that place and I'm, I'm a German guy so I'm, I'm not really believing in anything spiritual, anything like that, but uh, he told me he experienced it over the time that people that come to Venezuela and want to see the Catatumbo lightning and experience nature and have an eye for it, they're going to end up seeing something beautiful. That first day we all went out with a boat, we had a beautiful sunset, um, we had a rainbow behind the people celebrating. And in the end, in that, in that sunset, those first storms developed. I went with a clear visual of one specific photo I wanted to take, which was a big lightning bolt shooting down the side of a storm, basically through the clear air. And I think I was in the actual place for about 20 minutes until I got that photo, and I was just totally amazed by the fact that I tried to go for this picture in Germany for years and never really had the opportunity to take it, and in there it took me 20 minutes to come up with my dream photo. 
thing with storms is you will never really see the same thing twice. Weather is, uh, is a bit like cooking because if you change a bit on the recipe, it can change the whole taste of the food. So add a bit of humidity here and you get a storm that has beautiful structures, add a bit of dry air here and you get a storm that produces large hail or, or severe winds. Storms are often very colorful. The sunlight gets refracted either by hail or by big rain droplets and that creates some sort of blue, like really, really turquoise blue. And in more extreme cases with bigger hail or really severe winds involved, it even creates like a very, very strong green. You never really know what it would look like before you go, actually. It's a bit of Russian roulette when it comes to weather, to be honest. Sometimes you drive out for, for thousands of kilometers and you come back empty-handed just because the weather didn't really want to play the game with you that day. In Venezuela, it's completely different, you know. You can just sit there, relax, you, you go to the beach at night, uh, grab a beer, grab something to eat and just wait for the whole thing to happen. Obviously, when the storm is on top of us, we're not going to go and take photos because that would probably break our gear and ourselves in about a minute. On my last trip in November, where we had a storm right on top of us shooting lightning for about 20 minutes constantly, 100, 200 meters around us, which can be a bit scary sometimes, but in the end I believe that no photo is worth getting killed for. I actually talked to a lot of the locals and I gotta say I think by now they are so used to it. These people are, I'm not really sure about the English word, they are, they are very old school. You can really hear from talking to them that they have that sense of nature in a, in a very different way than people nowadays have because they have the most ferocious weather right on top of them all the time and still manage to live in that place. And I, I do believe that they think all this is uh, probably part of a, of a greater thing. In November last year, I was there for the third time, actually. We had two beautiful storms quite far away, right after the blue hour, so you could slowly see the whole Milky Way fading into the picture and, and have the two storms just flashing away like crazy in the opposite sides with the Milky Way right in between. And that moment, I, I feel like I'm, like I'm really in nature, and like nature is really everything that matters in that moment. By now I'm at that point where I can say maybe that guy's right, maybe there's some sort of spirit in that place that really rewards those that see nature with open eyes and, and don't just come there to, yeah, to say, okay, I've been there, you know. If you want to get a heads up on what the weather has planned for you, you'll be relying on a forecast. Mostly the data from weather forecasting is collected from weather stations, thousands of them all over the world, fully equipped with thermometers, barometers and rain gauges, diligently measuring every element of the elements. But what about the weather that's out of reach? Hurricanes form over the open ocean, far beyond the range of land-based weather stations. Luckily for us, there's an elite squad of fearless souls who go against all natural human instincts and fly directly into the heart of our planet's biggest and most dangerous weather systems. They're the Hurricane Hunters. And here's two of them. My name is Captain Christy Twining, and I'm a G4 aircraft commander. And my name is Lieutenant Commander Rebecca Waddington. I am a Gulfstream 4 co-pilot and an aircraft commander on our King Air. So the Hurricane Hunter mission that we fly on the Gulfstream 4 is called a Hurricane Synoptic Surveillance Mission. We get tasked by the National Hurricane Center to fly a pattern around the storm to within about 50 miles from the outer eye wall. We're much higher than our other platforms that actually fly into the storm. 
45,000 feet is the highest that we can go. Convection hurricanes can actually extend up to the mid-50s. So we don't intentionally go through severe storm clouds at that altitude. It's not something that the aircraft is meant to withstand. We will certainly get turbulence, thunderstorms. Those can be pretty violent. And anywhere where there's lightning, um, I don't don't really like to go through lightning storms. I mean, even though the aircraft is designed to be safe, if it does get struck by lightning, it can do some damage. So we try and take a path around the storm that gives us an out at all times so we're never pinched in between some of the severe bands of the storm. Ironically, sometimes the worst weather we get are the thunderstorms that pop up over Florida when we're coming back in for landing after the end of a hurricane flight. What we do is drop these instruments called drop zones. They are about a one-pound cardboard exterior with some sensors and telemetry, and it falls about 3,000 feet per minute, and it falls and collects data, uh, about two data points per second as it falls, pressure, temperature, humidity, wind speed, and position. That data gets sent on to the National Hurricane Center, And it really helps improve the forecast, especially in terms of track, making sure that those that are actually in harm's way get enough notification that they can get them and their families into safety. And we've both certainly been affected by hurricanes personally as well. In 2017, we had Hurricane Irma that actually went right over our aircraft operations center. We knew that our homes were in the direct path. And, you know, a lot of people who had young families back on the ground were flying. So they all had to figure out a way to make sure that their families were taken care of and also try to compartmentalize that and be able to fly the mission because it's a, you know, it's an intense mission. But I guess the eerie part of it all was, you know, when we were in the clear looking down and just knowing there was nothing we could do about it, it's sort of a, a, a quiet came over the aircraft as we got close to our last drop and knew that we were just going to leave our families, leave our homes, and, and go take safe haven in New Orleans away from the storm. We flew all over Florida following Hurricane Irma to survey the damage, and that was the first confirmation I had that my house that I had just purchased a month prior to that was okay, was when I literally flew over it. But we ran into several people at the New Orleans airport that were evacuated from places that received much more damage down in the Florida Keys. We were able to talk to them and share our website where all the photos are publicly available. They were able to pick out their particular house. And fortunately, it was a case that their house was still standing, but that was very rewarding to be able to be kind of the first eyes for them. I mean, the reason why we're here is because we were collecting scientific data that actually goes to help people directly going to improve a forecast that may save somebody's lives. Our first hurricane mission was August 5th of last year, um, where we flew out into Hurricane Hector. In the middle of the flight, one of our flight meteorologists actually came up and said, I need to take a picture of you guys. You're setting history today. We were the first all-female flight crew to fly a NOAA Hurricane Hunter mission. We kind of thought, oh, that's neat, and then just really went back to what we were doing. Now having Rebecca as a co-pilot has been great. I mean, when it's clear and there's not a cloud in the sky, we can be monitoring our instruments and telling jokes at the same time. And when we're further away from the storm, we're more likely to be in clear air. I mean, that's a really neat view. 
You can actually look down and see the bands of clouds that haven't really developed vertically yet, but you could see them spiraling in towards the center of the storm. And I think every pilot would agree that we have the best view from any office that you can ask for. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the BBC Earth podcast, where this week it's all about the weather. Weather, good or bad, is a permanent feature of life on our planet. But not only our planet. Have you ever wondered what the weather is up to on other worlds, out in the depths of space? And now for the weather where you are in the solar system. So, starting on the outer edge of the solar system with Uranus and Neptune in for another cold spell with temperatures dropping to a You get particularly cold when you move out to the outer edge of the solar system. So, when you get down to Uranus and Neptune, it's about minus 200 degrees centigrade. They have uh, very fast winds. On Neptune, they go up to 600 metres per second, so extremely fast. This is Tom Loudon, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Warwick. He's a bit like an intergalactic weatherman. It's his job to find out what the atmospheric conditions are like on other planets. Residents of Jupiter are being advised to stay indoors this weekend as the Great Red Spot continues to wreak havoc. Jupiter's famous red spot, which I'm sure everyone has heard of, it's uh, famously large enough that it could swallow the entire Earth. We have got quite good measurements of the wind speed there, so it's about 200 metres per second there. Venus is one of the worst places you could go in the solar system. has a very thick carbon dioxide atmosphere, 90 times the atmospheric pressure of the Earth, and it gets up to temperatures of about 460 degrees centigrade. So you're immediately crushed and boiling. There's a large amount of sulfuric acid in the atmosphere, so you're crushed, boiling and covered in acid. Choking clouds of sulfuric acid. So do take a brolly and that's your forecast. But it's actually more complicated than that. And this is something that I often tell people and they're surprised by. The upper atmosphere of Venus is actually fine. It's one of the more habitable places in the solar system, apart from the Earth. Up above the sulfuric acid clouds in Venus, you get to a point where the pressure is roughly the same as it is on the Earth. The temperature is about room temperature. And you couldn't be able to breathe the atmosphere, but you could actually imagine a big hot air balloon or something. And if you had an oxygen mask on or something, you could walk around in your T-shirt and shorts and you'd, you'd be OK. 
our atmosphere, which is an oxygen-nitrogen blend, is much less dense. You could just fill a balloon with Earth atmosphere and live inside the balloon, and it would float at this nice part of Venus's atmosphere. So you, you could explore Venus in this hot air balloon, and you wouldn't be any particular danger unless you've got a leak. Tom doesn't just look at the weather within our solar system. His specialty is exoplanets. An exoplanet is a planet around a star other than the sun, effectively, in distant star systems at least four light years away. We've directly measured over 3,000. There used to be a point where I knew the exact number, but it changes so fast now that I don't bother. <laughs> it's, it's over 3,000. Tom did a lot of work on a planet around 63 light years away from us with the charismatic name of HD 189733B. Oh yeah, my my favourite telephone number, yeah. <laughs> there was an effort to get it a proper name actually near the beginning. I think they wanted to call it Osiris, um, but that never really caught on. It's a very large and hot planet with a very extended atmosphere. It's one of the first that was discovered to be what we call transiting, which is from the perspective of the Earth, it moves in front of its star. And this twinned with the fact that it's around this quite bright star enables us to study it in quite a lot of detail. For some time, we'd suspected that this planet had very high wind speeds, around two kilometers per second. That is about 5,000 miles an hour, if I remember. It's faster than the speed of sound on the Earth, so I don't think we have anything that comes close to that. HD189 is about 20 times closer to its star than we are to the sun. So this naturally means that it's very hot. It's about 1600 degrees centigrade, the level of molten lava, say. So things that we would consider rocks on our planet would be vaporized into liquid or even gas. You can sort of picture yourself existing in these atmospheres, maybe in, in some sort of high-tech spaceship or something. I do like to imagine it, what the colour of the sky would be like, for example. I've done this before. If you take the spectrum of the planet, that is basically telling you what the colour of the sky is. HD 209 is another famous planet. The sky ends up being basically green from the very high amount of sodium absorption. So you can sort of picture yourself there and with the wind buffeting your spaceship or whatever. But, but yeah, it's, it's not somewhere where humans would ever really feasibly go. One thing that gets talked about in exoplanets quite a lot is uh, the presence of really exciting sounding and exotic kinds of rain or of clouds, things that we would think of as, as solids on the Earth. At these temperatures, silicon dioxide, so basically sand, it's also the thing that goes into glass. You could potentially have these clouds of, of molten glass, effectively. You also get aluminium oxide, in other words, ruby. So you hear about ruby clouds and ruby rain, even clouds of just straight-up magnesium silicate, which is just rock. It wouldn't be a glimmering cloud of little sparkling rubies. It wouldn't quite be like that. But it would look very different to anything that we've seen before on the Earth. There is a class of planet that's similar in size and mass to the Earth, so these are rocky planets that could potentially be habitable, orbiting around M-dwarfs. So M-dwarfs are the smallest, coolest, reddest stars that actually are the most common. But whether these things are habitable is another question, because to be close in enough to be warm enough to have liquid water on your surface, you get so close to the star that you become tidally locked. So tidal locking is what's happened to the moon. The moon is locked to the Earth, so we always see the same face of it. This is the same for a lot of exoplanets. So what's really interesting to consider is what is the weather like on an Earth-like planet if it's been tidally locked? So you have a permanent day and a permanent night. So you might be living in some sort of twilight belt around the planet so that you get some sun but not too much. 
But when you start making computer models of these kind of situations, it gets interesting because you have basically permanent winds moving from the day side to the night side, constant hurricane level events that never stop and are always moving from day to night. If you've got any liquid water on your planet, on the day side it gets so hot that it's going to evaporate up a lot into big clouds and these are going to get blown onto the night side. And on the night side it gets so cold that they just freeze and snow out. So all of your water might end up getting evaporated and then snowed down onto the night side. So you have one day side which is a complete desert and one night side which is just arctic and it, it might be completely uninhabitable. Every now and then you sort of have this moment of realization you're like, oh wow, this is this is like another place, like millions and millions of miles away, and, and I've actually reached out and touched it and found out something about it. And you you just sit there and think, wow, that's that's actually pretty cool. So there's weather on other planets. And sometimes there's weather on ours, which feels like it belongs on other planets. The thing about Australia is it's a part of the planet that I love flying over because when you fly over Australia, it feels like you're flying over the surface of Mars. You look down, you see the geology laid out in front of you. It's bright red, it's spectacular, and there's barely any water to be seen. And it just goes on through the most amazing alien-type rocky red landscape. Being a Brit, when I'm over there, it feels like I am in another world. We began this week with lightning storms and we've flown through hurricanes. Now we're going to end with a tornado. Well, a kind of tornado. This is Paul Williams, a producer at the BBC's Natural History Unit, and he traversed the Australian outback chasing a very different kind of storm. In 2013, I was filming a series called Wonders of the Monsoon, and there was one animal we were very keen to feature because it produced this amazing natural spectacle that very few people have actually witnessed. And the animal that we were desperately searching for was a budgie. A budgie is a little bird that in the wild is green, but lots of people like to keep them as pets and they come in all sorts of different colour varieties. When I was growing up, I remember my grandma having a blue budgie in her cage, but it was amazing to discover that in the wild they form these giant congregations of thousands of birds. It needs the perfect conditions. It needs a season when there's lots of food and the budgies can reproduce and the numbers can really build. And then it needs to be followed by a dry season when the water disappears to just a few tiny pools and the budgies are forced together. I mean, I'd seen images of it and it always looked to me just like a starling murmuration, but in bright green. So I thought this is going to be absolutely beautiful. But the problem is, how do you find them? Because the country is so vast, it's very difficult to pinpoint exactly where it's going to happen. That's a challenge. I flew to Alice Springs and I met an Australian cameraman out there and we spent quite a bit of time travelling up and down these long, endless roads into the desert looking for any sign of budgies on the distant horizon. It was incredibly hot, it was incredibly dusty and the dry season is full of flies so you do what's called the Australian salute, you're constantly waving the flies away. One thing we knew is that the budgies tend to congregate around areas of water. So I got uh, Google Earth up and we scoured the satellite data and eventually we found a tiny pool of water and we spent several hours driving off-road across the outback and we found this little pool of water. We got there about midday. It was really, really hot. There was no sign of life anywhere. 
but when I looked at the ground, I could see that it was covered in budgie poo and little green feathers floating on the wind, on the breeze. And I thought, this is amazing. We're here, we found it. The next morning, I came back before sunrise. I got into position. It was still quiet. There wasn't a sound in the air. It was dark. But in the distance, the sun started to rise. And when I looked towards the sun, I could see tiny little gatherings of birds starting to appear on the horizon. Little black clouds. And those little black clouds came closer and closer. And I could see that there were thousands of birds all coming towards where I was. So I, I stayed nice and low, kept quiet. And it wasn't long before I was completely surrounded by what felt like a tornado of tiny green twittering budgies. They circled around me. Uh, they pooed all over me, of course, but I didn't mind. It was quite exhilarating, actually, because you could feel the force of the wing beats as they flew straight past me. They formed these amorphous kind of blobs and shapes in the sky, quite similar to starlings. How do they even know to move like this? It's so beautiful. It's like they're dancing across the sky. It's absolutely uh, mind-boggling. It, it just blew me away. We estimated that there must have been at least 80,000 budgies there. It was quite a sight to behold. And that whole spectacle lasted about one to two hours every morning, and then the budgies were gone just like that. They disappeared. When you've got so many birds together, you know that there's going to be predators nearby. And so sure enough, it wasn't long before we started to see hobbies and kites flying in the air above us. And we started to spot them swooping down and hunting budgies. The hawks were quite clever. They wouldn't just kind of come from above and start diving down. There was a little bank on the other side of the pool. And we noticed that the hawks would almost sneak up, fly low level behind this bank... And then, when the budgies were least expecting it, they'd flip over the bank and dive straight in and catch a budgie. And it is, it is very sad to see the animal that you grew up in your grandma's house being hunted by a raptor. Uh, I mean, it's never nice seeing animals being hunted, but you knew that this is when the hawks are breeding. They, they've got young, they need to feed the young, and it's a perfect opportunity to catch prey. After three days of filming really well, we thought, you know what, we can be a little bit more ambitious with this. And we constructed a tall tower out in the desert using scaffolding poles and we'd planned to get to the top to get shots, almost looking down into the eye of this tornado. We went back that night, planning to return early the next morning to get these shots, and that night the heavens opened up. A torrential rain fell. And when we went back to the budgie watering hole, we waited expectantly hoping the budgies were still going to come here and there wasn't a single one the whole game was over we didn't really ever see them again but what was amazing is that we managed to find probably one of the very few places where these budgies gathered and we had three days three mornings with them in order to capture this spectacle yeah yeah it was it was incredible In this episode, we've seen a lot of examples of people who actively chase the weather. People who position themselves in the path of lightning, fly themselves into the middle of hurricanes, or lie in the heat of the desert under flurries of budgie droppings. I'd just like to point out that that's really not the only option. 
Adventures are all very well, but is there anything nicer than being tucked away inside, preferably in bed, while a storm rages outside? Or watching the sun beating down from under the shade of a tree? Weather is a spectacle that we love to watch, but we don't always have to be in it. You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. I'm Emily Knight, and for next week's episode, we're heading up, higher than we've ever been before, and looking back down at ourselves from the edge of space. If you can't wait that long, if you want more BBC Earth stories and videos right now, you'll find them all in our newsletter. Sign up at bbcearth.com forward slash newsletter. And see you next week. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.